Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. One of my absolute favorite guests, the one and only Professor David Trills of Hamlin University is here. How are you? I'm doing well. Just bracing myself and waiting for snow. I know. <laughs> well, I just, uh, at the forecast, folks, if you haven't heard, uh, there's going to be, there's a possibility of four to nine inches of snow coming a Sunday night through Tuesday morning. Tune in WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Uh, Mike Augustinek will have all the latest. I, I did when I got in here, um, Jonathan Lowe, our studio coordinator producer, had had the forecast all there ready for me. And I, I was like, Jonathan, I, I think this is the wrong forecast. <laughs> Actually, I can't take credit for it. Steve Thompson just left his weather forecast over there. I didn't but I, did, I literally prepared. said, Jonathan, I think this is. I, I think we got the wrong forecast here. I had not been paying attention. So, well, I was going to say the same thing. And the last that I had heard until I, you know, I put on your show earlier this evening, I was thinking, okay, it's going to it's going to be raining tomorrow night, and I figured, okay, it's going to wipe out the rest of the snow. Great, like that. And then I heard the forecast, and I thought, nah, you guys had the wrong forecast from like a month ago or something like that. Right. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, it does sound um it does sound a little scary to say the least a lot to talk about once again uh we, we've been saying this for what well over a year at least a couple of years right. um just when you think you've seen it all you see more mm-hmm. but i do want to ask you about something um that we began the show with and i did uh sloan martin was talking our, our wonderful reporter from the newsroom was talking about being at at a hearing uh, at the state capitol where they talked about two different gun control proposals. Both got shelled. The first was expanding background checks here. And the the loophole that exists, or what gun control advocates say is a loophole, is the fact that we do have extensive background checks uh, for gun purchases in the state of Minnesota with a very significant exception on private sales. Right. And that's a small percentage, relatively speaking. I think it's less than 10%, but still, it's an important number. So there's that proposal. Then also, there's a second proposal. And this one, you know, when I was talking to Sloan, I said, I am going to ask Professor David Schultz about this from the legal perspective, because that's why it's so great to get your perspective uh, as a law professor. One of the, essentially, this proposal says that if a family member or loved one knows of somebody who has a gun and feels that that person is a danger to themselves or to others, that person could could then go to a court and petition to have that weapon removed. And I I just, you know, when I read this, uh, you know, about this proposal and talking to Sloan again, I thought this is going to be really difficult uh, and this could be really a, a legal morass in a lot of ways. What are your thoughts from a legal perspective here? Well, it's going to be difficult. You're right. I first start with the language there. The language that is there, danger to oneself or to others, is essentially the same language that you would have to use or that's used in the law for involuntarily committing somebody. Um, let's, you know, if, again, let's say you thought... And, that's, and actually, you know something... That, uh, 
you know, that's that's exactly what, what I brought up because yeah. I know how difficult that has been. And I'm sure there are many listeners out there who have faced a situation where a loved one perhaps um, – it's somebody with with some form of dementia or mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, or perhaps it's somebody who who is suffering from mental illness. It's it's a road that a lot of people have tried to confront, and it's very difficult to, to commit somebody. But you you feel it's a comparable situation. It, it is a comparable situation because in a situation again where the person who you want to have committed, um, the, the the burden in our society is to sh- you know basically the presumption is people should be free, people should not be involuntarily committed. And it's an incredibly powerful um, um, standard that really requires um, pretty significant evidence, you know, in order to say someone needs to be committed. The same thing, you know, because of the liberty interest that we have in our society. The same thing is here, is once somebody has been, you know, issued a, a permit, you know, and remember again, you know, the, the Second Amendment does protect, you know, an individual right, you know, to, to, own, you know, to own guns. You know, once somebody's been issued a permit, um, it's going to take a dramatic amount um, of, of evidence to be able and, so, and burdens of proof to be able to strip somebody of, of of that right, and so I would suspect that such a process would would not be um, very easy, you know, in terms of um, prevailing in court because you'd have to go to court for this. Um, it would be, I think, diff- you wouldn't find. So that's the first thing. Second is that you're not going to see probably. Um, that many people lose their right to a, um, have a gun as a result of this process because of just the difficulty. So, uh, so on, on the score, just on laying it out this way, I'm trying to describe it here. It's even if it were the past, you're probably not going to take away too many guns from too many people. Right, and, and as you know, Sloan brought up the scenario, which apparently was brought up at this hearing. How do you get? You know, where where is the burden of proof? Uh-huh. Uh, and you could have this system manipulated very easily. Somebody perhaps, you know, maybe separating from their husband, and they get a weapon, and the husband petitions the court. I mean, it it, it seems like this would be a really tough one. It would be a very tough one, and I I I think that. It, you know what? Many people, many listeners, may not like the idea that people have guns. But the fact is, once again, once somebody has been issued that permit, we don't want to lightly take away a person's property. Which is another way of thinking it here: right. is that we're essentially telling somebody that property that you own, we're going to strip from you um, and take away from you. Again, generally, when you've been convicted of a felony, you're going to lose your civil rights. You're going to lose your rights to be able to own a gun. But short of that, again, it is going to take a pretty significant um, um, amount of evidence, and burdens are going to be on you to show that. And I think what you might also see, as as you started to hint at here, is some retaliation here. People might be just saying that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, um, and or wanting to get even with somebody. Again, the process is just not going to easily, easily lead to guns being taken away. All right. That being said, it does sound like that proposal in and of itself is problematic, whichever way you look at it. Your take, your thoughts, because we have so much to talk about, but I do want to ask you this. Obviously, there seems to be a surge in interest in some kinds of gun control proposals. Uh, rallies where a couple of dozen people were expected at the state capitol have drawn literally hundreds. Mm-hmm. Uh, there does seem to be a push here, 
but there also seems to be a pushback. Yes. Uh, your view, do you think any significant form of gun control measure will get through this Minnesota legislature this session? No, I don't at all. I, th- I think at the end of the day, what we saw earlier this week in terms of the two proposals getting shelved or tabled is what we're going to probably see the rest of the year, is that the NRA nationally is very powerful, and the the strength of the NRA in Minnesota as well as, 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 as pro-gun organizations is very, very powerful. It's less in terms of how much money they wield, more in terms of the fact that they have voters who are single-issue single voters who will turn out on, her turnout on this matter, and I just don't see the political calculus changing at this point. Yes, we know that there are very high percentages of the American population and probably the Minnesota population that support some type of um, um, various things in terms of background checks or assault rifle bans, et cetera, et cetera, but certainly not enough to move enough Republicans on this issue uh, in terms, and mostly we're talking about Republicans too, moving enough Republicans to be able to, ch- to change something on this matter. All right, chatting with the one and only Professor David Schultz. I want to take a break. I want to talk about what, what you described in, in, in the break to me is, is uh, President Donald Trump's very bad week, which actually, and I, I literally just pulled up the New York Times, uh, there's breaking news within the past few minutes that uh, the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller's uh, probe into possible wrongdoing, the Russia probe, is actually expanded now and now focuses on an advisor to the United Arab Emirates, uh, indicating a widening of the general inquiry. So that might be another layer there. But we want to talk about that and also the extraordinary pivot that the president made on gun control, which really stunned everybody, certainly uh, gun rights advocates, uh, Republicans, Democrats, everyone was surprised by this one. More with David Schultz after this. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 41 degrees, 819 in the Twin Cities. Uh, in a few minutes, I'll give you that forecast that is, uh, you may want to bury your head in the snow again because it's. Uh, a bit dicey with a lot of snow possibly coming our way or looks like it's coming our way uh, Sunday into Monday. Uh, but first, uh, continued conversation with Professor David Schultz. Uh, literally, a story is just breaking here uh, within the past few minutes that Robert Mueller's uh, in- inquiry into the Trump administration is expanding uh, to include uh, an emissary of the United Arab Emirates. Clearly, if that is in fact the case, uh, not good news. The president having a pretty rocky week. Yeah, I was going to say this was not a good week for him. You know, we looked at the fact that his son-in-law Jared Kushner lost a security clear, a top security security clearance. There's an investigation into some business dealings um, with Jared Kushner, as well as some business dealings of his daughter Ivanka. Um, we so we have we have that going on. We have. The, as you pointed out here, the continuing controversy of the investigations where Paul Manafort received um, yet another indictment, you know, for another charge. By the way, his trial is scheduled for September 17th, putting us into the middle of the general election. Wow. Okay. I, you know, I had, um, this is the former Trump campaign manager. I guess I hadn't really focused on that. Yes. He goes to trial in September. This is going to be one of those trials 
that's going to be very lengthy, probably weeks. Weeks, which means it's going to be a trial that takes us into what? Probably into the general. Well, that's, that's, the that's really the yeah. general election because you think of a general election sort of starting after Labor Day. Um, this is going to take us into September, October. Um, it's probably not going to conclude um, before Election Day, and if it does conclude before Election Day, um, the the verdict will have a tremendous impact, I suspect, um, on on the 2018 elections. So even before the story that you just mentioned here that's breaking on the New York Times at this point, this wasn't a good week for Trump. And the Mueller investigation, as opposed to winding down, as you pointed out here, seems to be expanding and getting broader and broader. And it's, it's not going away. It's I not mean, going away. Remember, I think last year we talked about this at one point, and I think I said or something we might have talked about, or I said that this was easily going to take us into 2018. You, you now, did. I now think it's going to take us beyond 2018 because if we've got Manafort's um, um, trial in in late 2018. Assuming, and I'm still thinking we may see some other indictments at this point, we may have indictments with trials going into 2019. Right. You know, and the president on this issue keeps tweeting, and obviously this is this is an incredible sore spot for him. He keeps tweeting no collusion. And I keep thinking that, okay, maybe there is no collusion. They're looking into it, but what they're finding are other things, and and the accusations that have resulted in indictments are more of the nature on the lines of obstruction of justice, which is a very serious crime in and of itself, and and that's something that is not going away. Correct, right, and for example, one of the things that Mueller is looking at now is the discussion that Trump had earlier this summer when he was contemplating firing Jeff Sessions and was the discussion about firing Jeff Sessions to get rid of him and replace him so he could get a new attorney general to fire Robert Mueller um, to shut down the investigation. If, in fact, that was the chain of, of events that Trump was contemplating, that gets us to what? Obstruction of justice. And what needs to be understood here is that Obstruction of justice doesn't always have to show an underlying crime, you know, that that there was actually collusion or some other felony occurring. If, for example, somebody is, the police or the FBI are trying to investigate something, and if you take steps to try to impede their ability to investigate, hide evidence, lie, do a variety of different things, um, that's obstruction of justice. And it may turn out here that even if there was no underlying collusion um, between Donald Trump, um, nonetheless, there could be a um, underlying collusion with with the um, his, his subordinates, and B, um, it may turn out that either Trump or his subordinates on his campaign or in his administration are engaged in what? Obstruction of justice, preventing Mueller from doing his job. In many ways, it would be much smarter for Trump just to say, okay, let Mueller do his job um, and and not try to stand in the way, and that would remove the obstruction of justice problem. All right. Let's talk about two major announcements by the president that apparently caught everyone by surprise. Uh, his, his pivot on gun control and also the announcement, even though he had 
talked about in the campaign of imposing tariffs uh, on imports. Apparently, no one at the White House knew he was going to say this. Let's let's start with the gun control measures. I, people were seemed to, at every level to be floored by this. Right, and, and during and before we went on the air, we I asked I said to you, do you have any idea where Trump is on gun control now? And we both kind of like no idea. But earlier, well, it's only in the week, but two days later or three days later. But, yeah. Right, but earlier in the week, it sounded like he was willing to go along with a few different proposals expansion of the bank crowd checks, um, some discussion of addressing, you know, the banning of bump stocks. We seem to have some some flipping back and forth in terms of where he stood, stood on a couple of other proposals. One of them he was proposing of saying that, what, the police should just be able to take away the, um, you know, weapons from people, you know, what, strip weapons and then due process later. And it looked like he was even telling the Republicans, send me, a, I think his phrase was, send me a comprehensive right. bill or something like that. Right. And then by Friday, it looked like he was walking away. But, but short term, I think he had everybody surprised, especially the Republicans, in terms of where he was on this. Right. And, and, and you, you, you raised like, such an important point. Where is he actually on this? And you, you almost get the the impression that maybe he's going to back away and pivot again, mm-hmm. um, which is remarkable. And the week before, he had talked about something which actually, of all the gun control proposals that are out there, this one to me seems the one that, that should be fairly easy to do, and that is placing an, an age restriction mm-hmm. saying that no one under the age of 21 should be able to buy uh, – one of these semi-automatic weapons. Mm-hmm. That, to me, seems like the easiest thing to do simply because we already have laws throughout this country, most notably with alcohol, mm-hmm. saying that no one under 21 can buy a beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like that seemed, seemed like a switch that might be palatable, yet the gun lobby was blocking that one, and the president seemed to back off that when he actually advocated it. So his moves on this, are, these are this is an important issue and his pivots have been difficult to grasp. They are difficult to grasp, and I think from the perspective of being in Congress, sort of there's two problems here, you know, for both the Democrats and the Republicans. For the Republicans, his, his, his maneuvers here puts them against where the Republican Party is on the issue of guns, and potentially on the one hand, it, it, it squeezes the Republicans, because, again, we know that Trump is still more popular um, than, than the Republican Congress. And, and it, so it potentially puts him, um, the NRA, and, and the Republicans in very different places. Um, but then second, if you're the Democrats, you now are in the position of saying, well, is, is he going to support something? Is he not going to support something? And this, I think, has been a, a recurrent problem with his administration, is the is the flip-flopping, it is the inconsistencies, it is the surprises. It surprises there. And, and part of what you have to be able to do in terms of making good public policy is to adopt a position and push it, and he seems to be unwilling to do that or unable to do that. All right. Um, I do want to ask you about this tariff sure. announcement, uh, but I want to do it when we come back because um, I do want to give everybody the forecast. I don't know everybody's going to be ready for it, but it is a pretty serious forecast uh, with significant amounts of snow uh, in our forecast uh, for Sunday night through Monday, even into Tuesday morning. So let's take a, a quick break. More with Professor David Schultz. After our break and after weather, we'll be chatting with him coming up.
It is 835 in the Twin Cities, 41 degrees. Esme Murphy with Professor David Schultz uh, talking about uh, the president's uh, volatile week here. Uh, in addition to the gun control proposals that he seemed to advocate or did advocate uh, midweek, there was also a proposal that came for implementing tariffs on certain imports of certain materials, including steel. This is something that he talked about in the campaign, yet apparently no one was expecting it when he made the announcement just uh, a day or so ago. Yeah, in fact, when he made the announcement, his chief of staff, Kelly, uh, was giving a, a, a talk at the same time and was suddenly asked about that you know, in the talk, and he was literally completely clueless regarding the fact that Trump had just made that announcement about the, the tariffs on importation of steel and on aluminum. And again, across his entire administration, uh, this was not something that had been vetted, apparently, or that had been studied uh, in terms of saying that you're going to go through some type of you know, administrative process, thinking about it, preparing for it, et cetera, et cetera. It, boom, it just sort of you know, happened. And, and clearly, I think, again, this speaks to the recurrent pattern of, of, of disconnect we've seen, again, in the Trump administration that we've talked about many times here, that the president seems to uh, um, 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 roll out an idea without preparing um, his staff, without consultation, without really telling any, you know, anybody about this. And this is having a big impact with the Republican Party because uh, most of the Republican Party in Congress does not support this, you know, this, this type of protectionism. And the ramifications for U.S. Um, trade policy are enormous. For people who don't understand, you know, we are part of, of what's known as the World Trade Organization, um, GATT, a, a variety of organizations that, that are, have been adopted over the last several years, NAFTA, so forth, which further free trade. And what we're going to face immediately once we put those tariffs in place is, is lawsuits through the World Trade Organization that could result in fines, um, pretty significant fines against the United States, as well as significant um, opportunity or realization, I should say, that we may see other countries that are going to retaliate against other U.S. against the United States in terms of tariffs or boycotts too. So, so this has all the potential, uh, as many people said, of escalating into a very, very serious trade war, which probably will not help anybody. Right, and and there have been a number of reports saying that that the president apparently was spurred on because he was upset about a number of things that were going on. First of all, his longtime aide, uh, one of his most trusted advisors, Hope Hicks, was testifying before a House committee on the Russia probe uh, behind closed doors, and a couple of days later, she actually announced her resignation. This is a very young woman. She's only 29 years old, but really has been uh, – according to many people, one of the closest people to the president. Uh, she announced she was leaving. Also, a more controversy over the attorney general. And also, he was apparently furious over this issue of his son-in-law, Jared Kushner's security clearance. Right. And, you know, we don't know if that's true, but it has been widely reported that the president was generally uh, distraught or con- concerned about these matters and, and that those may have actually triggered the announcement uh, blindsiding uh, all of his aides about uh, imposing these tariffs, which would amount, as you said, to a trade war. Once again, 
we're seeing a president who who acts on impulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what got him to where he is, and obviously, I think he feels that he can continue on this path without hurting himself. I would think. Right, and the, and, and 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 again, the, the the proof in the pudding will be November of two thousand and eighteen. Um, short term, in terms of how it affects him, or maybe even earlier, depending on how the Mueller investigation rolls out. But there's lots of different things I want to sort of comment on here. You know, first is let's still go back to the to the actual tariff here. Is that on top of the trade war that will be kicked in? You know, one of the things that's important to realize is that we don't produce enough steel um, for our domestic use in the United States, and and probably we should increase our our production. Of and steel. I'm sure there are many people probably listening to us right now. Right. You know. Uh, up north who are saying, good, this is what we need. Exactly. There's no question we probably need to do that from a national security point of view, but this is not the way to do it. Um, what we're going to see is that the sh- it could produce a shortage of steel, which then means what? An increase in steel prices, increase in construction costs, a whole bunch of different things, but it, this, 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 this could be very costly to our economy short term. Whether or not longer term it'll lead to increases in production of steel, um, it's also debatable because, again, simply imposing tariffs and quotas doesn't necessarily mean we're going to ramp up steel production. And certainly for anybody up in the Iron Range, this does not mean tomorrow jobs reappear. That's the first thing. The second thing is with Hope Hicks, um, she pretty much had to resign. When when she admitted before uh, the Congressional Committee, uh, her phrase was, I told a few white lies. Um, you know, as a communications person, and I was going to say, you're, and you're a journalist, you know the same thing. Um, you, you, get, you get to tell one lie in your life. After that, it's over. No one's going to ever believe you again. Um, and when she admitted that she was telling white lies, um, Basically, her base of support, whatever she meant by white lies, collapsed. And then the last point I was going to make with, with Jeff Sessions, I actually think Jeff Sessions did the right thing this week. You know, Jeff Sessions um, um, has taken a lot of heat, but when Trump was criticizing him um, in terms of the role that he had been taking in the Russian investigation and about, about having him recuse himself and about not trying to cut off the investigation, Sessions defended himself by saying that he's not going to compromise the integrity of the Justice Department um, and its ability to do its job. And that was the right answer. I think that was truly the right answer, and he should be applauded for that. Right. It, it, it is, you know, with the resignation of Hope Hicks and, and obviously other departures, you know, in the White House, it has got to be, first of all, to, to work in the White House under any circumstances, is incredibly pressure-filled. But one can only think how difficult it has to be for these staffers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, people like professionals like General Kelly to have to be confronted by, you know, questions on a major policy they haven't even heard of. Mm -hmm. I mean, and also, you know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, it it is remarkable to me that that also he and and also Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, that they have remained in their positions Mm -hmm. because people have resigned over a lot less in terms of the kind of criticism, the public criticism they have gotten from their boss. You're absolutely right. And on top of which, when you think of the press secretary, um, for um, for Trump, who was asked this week, 
you know, whether or not the president has confidence in Jeff Sessions, for example, where she says, I really don't know, you know, and, and you expect, you know, right. that the, the press secretary is, is going to be able to speak for the president confidently. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think back to the Bush administration, for example, where you had situations where um, the president um, seemed to not have confidence. I'm forgetting his name now. He was the Treasury Secretary, um, who at one point was the head of um, Alcoa. Um, I mean, they had major fallings out. You know, Rumsfeld um, major fallings out at some point, and they eventually stepped down. And that was nowhere near the degree that we're seeing with Tillerson, seeing with Sessions here. But again, the fact that they're surviving is amazing. The fact that Kelly... Well, that they're willing to continue to serve, I would Right, and willing to serve with the humiliation they're going through. I mean, what was fascinating this week with Sessions is that he didn't just sort of get criticized by Trump. He responds back, and it was an open, basically an open fight. Um, I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, to me, you know... If, if you were to tell me, you know, in 48 hours that Kelly, Tillerson, and, and Sessions were stepping down, um, I would not at all be surprised. And, but I, and I wouldn't be surprised that before, um, before the 2018 elections kick in that we see, I'd be surprised if we don't see several more major resignations or shiftings around. I mean, at some point, I have to imagine, you know, with, with the mounting problems for, again, for, for Jared Kushner and, you know, um, and, and, Ivanka, and Ivanka Trump, that they're, the pressures on them are going to be enormous on the step away from from being being involved with the Trump administration. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Chatting with uh, the one and only Professor David Schultz. We're going to take a break. Uh, We can switch gears here and talk about uh, the the very big, you know, all the different elected offices that are going to be on the ballot here in Minnesota in November, uh, including uh, the Minnesota House. And it'll be interesting to see if some of the concerns voiced by gun control supporters will actually come to fruition. They're saying if they don't get the gun legislation through the Minnesota House, they're going to vote on this. So we'll see. All right, let's talk about that when we come back with Professor David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. All right, folks, Esme Murphy, along with the one and only Professor David Schultz, uh, one of the things that we haven't talked a lot about on this show is the fact that the Minnesota House, they're all up for election in November. Uh, what are your thoughts about those House elections? Because that is such an important election, one that, that doesn't get you know a lot of play or, or, or discussion oftentimes on, on shows like this one. Well, you're absolutely right, because every, everybody's focusing on either the governor's race or the U.S. Senate races, or the the House races, and they're all U.S. House races, but we do have the entire 134 um, House of Representatives up for election. Right now, there is a um, a 20 a 20 vote lead that the Republicans have, and the Democrats are clearly hoping that they can take back the House of Representatives next year, hold on to the governorship, which would then sort of you know. You know, work. You know, work in terms of being able to move some of their agenda. And I mention all this because if we think about again those 134 seats, and I'm actually working on this right now with my stu- some students, we're constructing a, a, a database to really try to look at um, what you know, you know, which seats are, are really winnable or, lo- or losable. If I can use that word there by both parties. And our preliminary data suggests that there's probably no more than about. 
15 to 20 house seats in Minnesota wow. that are truly in play. You know, the rest of them are solidly Republican, solidly Democrat. And so our focus is going to be on those 15 or 20 seats um, that, that could actually move back and forth that could have an impact in terms of who controls the House of Representatives. Right. And, and these are seats that traditionally can be won by a few hundred votes. If you don't think your vote counts, this is really where it can count, uh, you know, because that can make a difference here. You're right. And these are seats, for example, we know that quite a few of the seats in Dakota County, for example, have flipped back and forth several times. You know, we've got a couple of them um, out in Washington County, kind of go up in, you know, in kind of a loop in terms of really, I was going to say, sort of the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the inner ring suburbs um, across, you know, Minneapolis, you know, into like, you know, Bloomington, you know, out into Plymouth area, you know, kind of whipping around towards Fridling, kind of the northern suburbs. You know, these are where most of the swing seats are, not all of them. Um, that in Dakota County, you know, put us down maybe towards like Olmstead County and so forth like that. You know, but these are right. We we're looking at some seats over the years that in some cases we've had it down to what one or two votes that have decided the, the um, uh, who, who wins the race. And, and as you point out here, that, that for people who want to say that it doesn't really matter where I vote on Election Day, in some of these swing districts, um, it, is, it is incredibly critical because it is just a handful of votes that has determined the outcome of, of many of them. All right. Uh, a lot of uh, items on the ballot here. Uh, one of the things that we saw in the 2016 election in which Donald Trump almost won the state of Minnesota, obviously he won the presidency, is we saw that Democratic voters were actually – the Democratic DFL voters were actually suppressed in their voting. In other words, their totals, the numbers that were they came out in was actually down. They were not energized, whereas the Trump voters, Republicans were. Is that – going to happen again in 2018, or will both sides be energized? I mean, who do you kind of give the nod to? Well, first off, let's go back exactly to your point here. Again, I have, I have a chapter in a, in, a, um, in a book coming out which looks at Minnesota um, in terms of what happened in 16, and we know that, um, that Clinton won the state by 50,000 votes. Trump only got 2,000 more votes than Mitt Romney received um, in 2012, the difference was that Clinton received um, about 100, and I think the number was somewhere, I'm forgetting the number off the top of my head now, but about 180,000 fewer votes than Obama did. So, so Democrats just didn't show up on Election Day, and we can point that out to specific, you know, specific I mean, counties and across the country. That's a lot, 180,000 fewer. Yeah. People were not excited about Hillary Clinton's campaign exactly. and candidacy, and they were excited about President Trump. Correct. And then also Canada Hillary Trump. Clinton didn't campaign in this state, which also didn't right. help, and Trump did show up to this state. But going into, into – into, I think she was here. I Certainly Chelsea was here. Yeah, but, but, but she herself, the last time she was here was right before the caucuses and okay. never came back to campaign. And I she got she, killed here by – Bernie Sanders she got like sixty-seven percent in the you know in the caucuses. I think she came back for one private fundraiser, but not for the purposes of campaigning. But all the indications are, and if we could use the the caucuses in Minnesota from about a month ago as an indication that the Democrats seem highly energized, um, Republicans you know 
flat then. They didn't seem excited by the gubernatorial candidates in terms of pulling them out. But the Democrats seem to be more energized right now um, than the Republicans. And that's really the issue going into this election here. To what extent are the Democrats energized, especially in what? Those critical, uh, let's say, state legislative swing swing seats um, or the congressional ones. And so, for example, in this state, you know, we've got four... Um, congressional districts that are considered to be swing. You know, the 8th eighth, eighth District Iron Range, we've got 2nd District, which is kind of, you know, where Jason Lewis is. We have the 3rd the District, Eric Paulson, and the 1st District, which is being abandoned by Tim Waltz running for governor. Those are all four that, depending on what the turnout looks like on Election Day, they could roll all Democrat or they could roll all Republican. And and nationwide, um, Democrats need to pick up, pick up and hold all, pick up you know um, Jason Lewis's one, uh, pick up Paulson's, hold the other two if they want to be able to pick back, pick up control of the House of Representatives. But the point being is that we're looking at, especially in those swing districts, who turns out the vote is going to have a big impact, and the Democrats seem to have the advantage right now. And and these these supporters of gun control, I, I talked to, to one of the leaders of, of Moms Demand Action, and she said, if we don't get what we want in, in the Minnesota legislature, we will turn out. Mm-hmm. We will vote. Mm-hmm. And I guess we won't know <laughs> until November. But they uh, seem, and, and obviously, you know, other groups have turned out uh, – as well, you certainly saw the Republicans do that in in 2016. But it's going to be, I think, so interesting to see exactly what happens in terms of turnout, uh, in terms of who is energized uh, in this unreally uh, uncharted, you know, period that we are right now uh, in terms of you know the presidency and you know sort of Trump campaigns and Trump politics. And, and how people respond, how voters respond. You're absolutely right. Again, we've over the years talked about many times how the key to elections, you know, for both Democrats and Republicans, is what suburban women do, and really, really sort of, I would say, what you know, what women do in general in terms of as voters. And you've got the Me Too movement. Movement. We've got women energized. More women have declared running for Congress and state legislative seats here than ever in any election year in history. Um, we have all the the, the makings for for women to to turn out and vote in enormous percentages and run for office and if they actually do deliver you know the evidence is suggesting that they may very well turn out for democrats this time we know that in 2016 at the end of the day i still tell people 52% of white caucasian women you know voted for for donald trump you know here it doesn't look like a lot of those women are as enamored by donald trump as they were 2 years ago and, and looking to see what those, if I can use the phrase, those soccer moms or those hockey moms do, um, um, it's really going to be the key to what happens in the election this year. All right. And again, will they be energized? Will they turn out? And, and that's something that remains to be seen. Well, Professor David Schultz, as always, always a pleasure. And I want to remind everybody to, to tune into your blog as well. Uh, Schultz's take, always great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Anytime, and get your shovel out. I know. <laughs> well, it's out. Okay, good. <laughs> I haven't put it in the closet yet, I promise you. In fact, in fact, our main shovel broke at our house, so we had to get another one. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it isn't tucked away yet, I can tell you that. So, 
Great. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, absolutely. The one and only David Schultz. And again, please do check out his blog because it's always great stuff. Uh, always great to hear his insights here. Um, want to thank the producer of this show, David Josephson, as well as uh, producers Jonathan Lowe and Shaletta Brundage, uh, for keeping us on the air this evening. I uh, want to invite you to turn in, tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. I want to let you know Mike Augustinak is working hard. The forecast is crazy, but we will have the latest details on the snowstorm that is coming. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.